Welcome to the Sum of It All Humanizing Disability in Mathematics podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we're back for season two of exploring a book to help push our practice as math educators and leaders. In this episode, we are diving into chapter one of Humanizing Disability in Mathematics Education by Paulo Tan, Alexis Padilla, Erica Mason, and James Sheldon. Just like before, Mark and I will chat about one chapter of the book each episode and invite you to listen in as you read along with us. Whether you read it already or plan to read it soon, we are so glad you joined us for this episode where we explore the power of humanizing mathematics education. To get us started, Mark, I'm curious, what's one thing that caused you to pause or just really grabbed your attention in this chapter? Well, Audrey, I was gra- my attention was grabbed almost from the get-go here, right on page nine. And the authors offer some reasons why teacher-centered instruction is not humanizing. And on page nine, this is what they, they wrote. The mathematics content and procedures are disconnected from who they are and their interests as humans, and they meaning students. And the, the, the phrase that really caught my attention there, Audrey, is who they are and their interests as humans. I thought that was a really powerful phrase to kick off the chapter. Uh, as I think back to um, my work with students, when I taught fifth grade, I think in many ways, uh, I thought I was doing something that was, that was enhancing the experience for students. Um, but I think in, in thinking back to it, I think I was really just trying to make it less, less painful. Mm. So kind of like that spoonful of sugar, right? Uh, make it entertaining enough. Math can be fun. I really don't think in most cases I was considering their interests as humans beyond like the idea of, oh, I got to make sure that video games or pop culture references are included in story problems. So I, I really appreciate this push uh, by the authors for us to really consider the idea of student interests as humans and, and really this idea of humanizing in general. It, it's, really, it's really making me think a lot. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark, because I definitely, as a secondary teacher of mathematics, I definitely thought about their interest as teenagers in food. Um, So I often brought candy (laughs) or pizza or donuts into the lesson. Um, But I don't think that authentically um, was looking at them as humans. And when I think now about the kinds of conversations that our teens are engaged in, um, and thinking about their world and how they make a difference in their world and how um, what they want to do, they want what they do to matter. Um, and thinking about those pieces that I was really dealing with a very superficial level of engagement there by saying like, hey, there's some candy here um, and we're gonna do some probability with it. You know, like, woohoo, it's exciting versus like, let's really dive into some of these statistics that are pretty interesting, scary, relevant to your life. Um, into what might be um, coming up for you in terms of issues that are prevalent in what your experience is. Um, So totally different in how like um, our our two levels of uh, teaching were, but very similar in that idea of like, I considered interest, but so, so superficially. And um, to think about instead how, how it must look like if we were really honoring them as humans and their interests and thinking about what that would look like and sound like. I really like how you said that, Audrey, because as I'm thinking back to my fifth grade classroom, we certainly during during ELA had many different experiences with 
reading about the world and considering things about the world. But I think that I really didn't know how to bring mathematics into those situations. And so they remain separate. So we might be really passionate about something that had to do with the world in US history or in ELA. Um, but in mathematics, it was more about me making a show that that would keep their interest uh, rather than taking some of those topics that could have really driven that for them. So I, re I really appreciate your point on that. As, I, as I'm thinking about the book and how it's set up with this chapter, it, there's, there's one dichotomy that seems to be set up here from the beginning, um, and especially with that vignette of the prospective teacher. And it seems like there's this conflict between this idea we plan for disabled students by describing their deficits, needs, and how the lesson would be modified to accommodate them. So that's, that's sort of one side of things. But then at the same time, there's this conflict with allowing students the opportunity to explore and construct knowledge individually and with their peers. And one of the things I was thinking about, Audrey, is it's interesting if you think about that first situation that I described it, with that deficit frame. And I'm curious about how much that even subconsciously frames our mindset around the students that we're working with. And, and the authors have already mentioned this idea of disability as tragedy and how to, how to push against that. But it, but it makes me wonder if when we're in that first paradigm, it seems like that idea of disability as tragedy is, is, is not far behind because it can, can seep into our consciousness. And um, it really makes me think about, again, back to universal design for learning, how we can set things up from the front end so that all of our students have access to high quality tasks. Um, but really, uh, gosh, that notion of disability as tragedy creeping in is just something I'm really thinking about. Yeah, I'm with you, Mark, on that one. I, I thought about this deeply when I got to that section of the chapter and I just, you know, these chapters are very short um, and deceivingly so, um, only mm -hmm. a few pages long, um, but they can provide hours of really thinking and um, self-discovery if you allow it to. And one of the things that I'm still kind of, um, struggling is the wrong word, but grappling with perhaps is like, how do we get to the place where we really believe that number one, that first one that they present there, that planning for students by describing their deficits, needs um, and accommodations is not the ideal. Um, when all of our previous practice dictates that that's the way we've always done it, um, that's what you know our system expects of us. Um, and, and when we think about the kinds of mathematics we're asking, we're pushing our students into, or, we, or that you and I have been talking about, and it sounds like chapter two, we'll get into it more deeply, um, but there's very little research, it seems, out there on the... Um, that kind of mathematics engagement with students with disabilities. And so like, we don't have anything that says, hey, in the research, here's what we can see, notice and happen. Um, although I'd like to hearken back a little bit to season one and building thinking classrooms for a moment because Peter's research, um, he did not separate out students with disabilities and say, mm -hmm. sorry, if your class has students with disabilities, right. you cannot do building thinking classrooms, right? right. Um, and so the practices that um, he, engaged in research around and allowed teachers to engage in and the results they got supported students with disabilities right and that's the kind of mathematics that you and I have been championing where students are doing the thinking and the reasoning and the making sense right and they're the ones in charge of of, um, of building that sense making where the teacher is there to support it 
Um, and, but we're not focusing in on ahead of time who can't do what because of what reason um, that we're expecting all of them to engage in mathematics. So, so I'm, I'm just curious again about like how we get to the place where we don't um, walk into it blindly with an assumption that, oh, I see a label, therefore I'm looking now at the deficit and now I'm going to go um, because of that deficit plan for an accommodation um, and kind of travel down this pathway of towards uh, disability as tragedy instead of into the, the powerful assumption that um, the diversity of our students and their neurodiversity and their ways of looking at things actually bring something to the table that without we are less than as a community. Um, and so I'm, I'm still grappling with that, I think. Yeah, I, I, I am as well. Um, I, I really appreciate that point that you made about um, sort of the lack of research and that type of thing. You know, I think that, you know, the, the, we have like a doubling effect with students with disabilities in terms of mathematics. I feel like procedural mathematics still has a strong hold and dominance in many classrooms. Um, and I think when you combine that with the field of a special education, often they often maintain that need for students with dis disabilities to be taught by mimicking. And so again, a turn back um, to our, our last uh, podcast with Peter's work. So I, I think that even if I have a classroom where I've started to make these shifts with the way that mathematics is presented and engaged with students making meaning uh, as they go through their work, I think that still there's that hesitancy and there's feeling like my students with disabilities are like the exception to making this shift. Um, and I, I like to go back just for a second episode one where uh, the authors really bring out that this is not a blame game. This is not like you're doing it wrong and that type of a thing. I think that, I think we really have to go back to what, how did we end up where we are? Um, because I don't feel like we can make a shift until we acknowledge the fact that we're teaching the way that we were taught. We're teaching the way our, our teacher education program might've said, when you have students with disabilities, you need to be very conscientious about their needs. And so I think there's, a lot of well-meaning folks, including ourselves, that are engaging in practices that we believe are the best thing for our students. And so I think it's, that's why I'm so excited about this podcast, I think, because this is really pushing us to grapple with things and, and think about why we've been doing things the way we've been doing. I think that's a great point, Mark. Um, even to that end, the teachers who teach math to students with disabilities are not always um, in the same department as each other. I know as a secondary teacher, there was a separate department of teachers for students with disabilities at two of the high schools I was at. Um, and we often did not have time to plan together, uh, to attend professional learning together, to collaborate together. And so there's no wonder we weren't on the same page around what mathematics teaching and learning looks and sounds like. Um, we weren't engaged in conversation together. And so I think that there's just barriers that we need to consider in breaking down um, in order to move forward with that. And again, I appreciate that point. It's not about a blame game, but it's about understanding our system, right? So if we're looking at this and saying, why is it that our system is broken and not, and not benefiting all of our students right now and supporting all of our students, um, it's helpful to look at all of those pieces and recognize um, that there's some gaps in terms of our services and our supports to our students. Yeah, we certainly have a system that's been created to support the more traditional way things have happened. So. Um, even us trying to interrupt one piece of that system, it seems like there's 10 other pieces of it that are pushing against us. 
And so I think that's good to acknowledge that because uh, as, as all of us try to start pushing on the system, we need to see that there's going to be so many layers of it that we're going to just have to be patient as we continue to do what's right for kids uh, as we learn more. Um, hey, Audrey, what about that idea on page 13 of authentic versus aesthetic care? I thought that was so interesting about the idea of authentic care has a credible action attached to it, whereas aesthetic care, and what I mean by is authentic care for students, um, having that credible action and aesthetic care being this idea of good intentions and sort of, I think it's really good for, for me to sort of push myself and say, have, have I been practicing more authentic care for students or aesthetic care and, and having this idea of good intentions. And it makes me think about how you and I have been talking about, you know, how language matters with this and how do we, how do we describe how we look at students. I think when I was in my classroom, a lot of times it was like, high expectations. I have high expectations for all my students. And then we've, we've heard that work from Andrew Gale about presuming competence. And so that's just such a, to me, a, a much different way of presenting my beliefs around students is presuming their competence. And then I know you and I were in a conversation recently where we said, well, maybe there's even another phrase like expecting brilliance. And, and I just think language can really nudge us towards shifting our beliefs of what our students are capable of. Um, what are you thinking about regarding all that? I think that's a, that's a great point, Mark. I think having a moment to sit back and examine your practices and think about the authentic care versus aesthetic care is a really interesting um, exercise to go through. But this point that you're making around um, language and how it matters is that it's you know, whenever we find ourselves hidden into the rut of, um, yeah, I do that, or, you know, I've heard that already, then it's probably a good chance for us to think mm -hmm. about moving and pushing ourselves forward a little bit further. And so I think for, for both of us, um, you know, when, when we heard Andrew Gale speak on presuming competence, that was a moment of really challenge for us around students mm -hmm. with disabilities, around reframing that yes, I have high expectations for all my students, but do I really, right? And then we get to presuming competence. We're like, oh, that looks and sounds different than what I was describing when I said high expectations. And I know that now that, um, you know, we're doing a lot of reading and work around culturally responsive education and teaching um, and thinking around this work of um, Goldie Muhammad's work around cultivating genius, that there's, there's this notion out there of really thinking about each individual student as as the genius that they bring to the table, as the brilliance that they have, and what would it look and sound like if we were to expect that of students. And so I think that's the newest place that, that I am at, and I think that we've talked about together, about being at and, and how we might reframe what we talk about when we engage with students, is that um, what would it look and sound like if we were to expect brilliance and what would be different about your um, your teaching habits or your instructional methods if that was how you approached each and every class. Um, so it's another challenge for each of us to consider um, wherever you're at kind of on that journey. Um, and maybe those aren't the right words for you. And there's other words out there that make more sense, but um, to continue to challenge ourselves that um, we can recognize that there are things we can do better for our students. Um, I'm curious though, as we're thinking about what we can do better for our students about um, what's the practical next steps from this process, right? Um, and so this book has a lot of really interesting things for us to think about but we can often get really stuck in just the thinking part and not into the doing piece. And um, 
So I, one of the things I've been thinking about as I read particularly this chapter is that the stories really matter, that the stories that, um, that we remember and that we tell um, about our interactions with students um, and how we felt and how our students felt um, can really change our trajectory. And so um, I'm curious if that might be a place of action for each of us about thinking about a student or a scenario that, um, that you wrestled with um, that brings this book, you know, to the, to the, your curiosity that brought you to this place of like saying, I want to learn more um, and I want to do better. I think for, um, you know, the authors mentioned Rachel Lampert's article and um, how she talks about Ms. Marquez and Luis and how the beginning of the year, Luis was fully engaged in mathematics and super excited, but then the teacher needed to shift into preparing for an assessment and became kind of a really um, teacher-centered instruction. And Luis just, you know, shut down and was totally not interested. And so that's a story that sticks with um, Rachel in terms of like, what is it about that shift that we can undo um, or change in order to help all students. And then there's um, in this chapter, Paulo Tan's Dexter. Um, and so I'm curious, maybe we can start talking about that story first, Mark, and then maybe you can share maybe one of your stories. Um, but let's start with Paulo's story. What's, what did you notice about his story about Dexter and what's sticking out to you? Well, what, what's sticking out to me is, is I'm thinking about this idea of how we could take his story and frame it into this idea of taking a next step. Um, you know, this, this idea of mathematics of versus mathematics for um, is really sticking with me with this. And, you know, it, in terms of Dexter's story, you know, Paulo had this, this, he was pleased with his, his progress as he starts to tell the story um, as, you know, he was teaching, back sort of a little bit more traditionally and, and Dexter was pretty motivated and he had a pretty good work ethic. He was finishing his work first. And I thought it was so reflective how Paulo mentions that, you know, he, he kind of have a pause for a minute. He said, wait a second, I haven't stayed true to this commitment of teaching mathematics differently. How easy it is for us to slip back into that, that more familiar way. And I, it really made me think about again, this idea of what could be a next step. And one of the things that I was thinking about is this idea of reflecting at the end of the day with how I interacted with my students with disabilities. Um, was I engaged in, with them in an of mindset or a for mindset? And I was thinking that that would be something that would be really interesting to reflect on at the end of the day um, and, and sort of just sit with that for a minute and consider that. Um, and it does remind me of a student that I had once, uh, his name was Robert, and I had introduced some mental math to the students. And I remember walking with him one day, just very clearly, and he was doing multiplication problems in his head by having and doubling using a strategy and, and sharing that with me. And he was so proud of himself because he could mentally uh, manipulate these numbers in a really, really uh, efficient manner using a, a strategy that was based on thinking. And I remember being so excited about that, but you know what I didn't do, which is what's been made clear in this particular chapter is, is I didn't really say, I'm gonna take that and really transform the way he's, he's learning most of the time. So I kind of identify with Paulo in that sense that, you know, even though there was something interesting there, I still sort of, I think for the most part, went back to 
what are Robert's deficits and what are the things that I need to work with him on? So um, I think that it's challenging to, to really run with that in, in, in the way that we should. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I can relate to several of Paulo's pieces of his story and even teaching in an alternative setting for a year um, like he did. But in particular, I'm thinking about a year when I co-taught an Algebra One class and a student asked um, about what their assignment was for the day or something close to that. And I had all the assignments for the courses listed on the whiteboard, good old practice. I'm not <laughs> proud of all of my practices, but there was <laughs> that's what I had done. Um, and it just said algebra one or geometry, which are the two classes I was teaching. And the student was like incredulous, like, but what about our class? And I was like, well, this is algebra one. So you're doing the algebra one work. He's like, no, no, but our class is a special class. Like they knew that because there were two teachers in the room, like he knew that there was this something different about the class, right? Um, and thinking through our exchange now and the words that came out of my mouth and the words that the student was struggling to identify with about saying like, what is it that makes our class different? And why is it that you're still holding us to that same expectation? Um, there are pieces there that I, I'd like to go back and say differently, but there's also pieces where I, you know, that I think through um, that exchange and just recognizing that that student didn't um, have been taught to believe that they were not capable of doing the same work as someone else in the same named course. Um, and that it was a surprise um, for them to be held to the same standard. They weren't sure that they wanted to be held to the same standard, um, that they berated both themselves and their classmates in some of those, those pieces. And that um, very similar to um, the pushback that Dexter had in just yeah, the shift exactly. mm -hmm. in Paulo's story, the student did not want to be part right. of that other system. Like I figured out how to work in this, uh, this system I'm in, just lead me to it, right? Um, and especially by the time they're in high school, they've kind of figured that out. And so it's not an easy thing to shift your beliefs about students or their beliefs about themselves at that point in time. Um, I, I think that's such a great point, Audrey. And I think it's important for us all as we engage in this work to realize that our students with disabilities might actually push back harder than our other students might. And so we might sort of walk away with this idea of like, well, I actually... I'm not going to continue this pursuit because my students with disabilities, they, they just would rather not learn this way. Um, they're more comfortable. I could even see us saying they're more comfortable learning by mimicking. So I want to make sure that I keep them comfortable and be successful. So I think that, uh, as you point out, that story with Dexter is important for us to, to remember that um, that doesn't mean that we should stop the work just because initially our students may seem uncomfortable with it. That's a great point, Mark. So we're at the end of the, um, we're near the end of this podcast episode. Tell me what's a lasting takeaway. What are you walking away with um, this chapter? Well, one of the things that I'm walking away with is that this idea has been mentioned a couple times by the authors of that there are many different ways of doing mathematics that we do not fully understand. And I just think that's so intriguing. And, and I'm looking forward to reading more about this uh, as we go through the book. It, I'm kind of connecting back to our first episode, Audrey, where you brought out um, the idea of collectivist versus individualist work, and also that notion of us losing something when we are missing someone's thinking. So I think all of those things have connections with each other. And so I... I have to say, I'm, I've been really reflective of thinking back to the students that I've worked with in the past and 
oh my gosh, how much better we could have been as a class if we would have included um, all students thinking because I could have had a better way of making sure that their voices were heard and their thinking was heard. And so I'm interested to continue to ponder that as we go through the book. I love that. Definitely thinking about those thoughts. I'm also thinking about um, how we work, we all work from assumptions um, and how I think I talked last, last episode about trying to uncover more blind spots for myself um, and the assumptions that are interesting to me um, and how we uncover those. One of the things the authors mentioned at the end of this chapter were that students with disabilities are mathematics doers and thinkers, mathematics belongs to them and we must resist the idea of disability as tragedy. And so I just keep going on this idea I'm taking with me. Um, if these were the three assumptions that we held deeply as teachers and allowed to guide our work, how would that transform our work day to day, in and out, um, what teaching and learning looks like in our, in our mathematics classrooms? So I'm taking that with me as we leave this episode. Wow, I just, I love how you brought that into three things to be a guiding light. That's, that's awesome. That's great. Well, everyone, Thanks for joining us for this episode. We're looking forward to chapter two, which is expanding the meaning of mathematics. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes in forging new paths. Thank you.